welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. The politics of U.S. foreign policy are undergoing change. With the fourth president to preside over the global war on terror, with a growing cohort in both parties explicitly questioning America's military activism, there's a serious debate around ideas like the liberal international order, which are supposed to kind of legitimate U.S. activism, but had gone largely unquestioned in the mainstream until recently. There's an ongoing withdrawal of Afghanistan. And there's a debate about how to confront China. And, and all this, it can kind of seem like rapid changes are happening in the foreign policy discourse. And it is a very interesting time. But my guest today argues that we're also un undergoing changes to the politics of foreign policy on a much more gradual and much longer timescale. Trevor Thrall is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University, and he's known to this audience as the former host of the show. Trevor, my man, welcome back. Hey, John. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on the show. So this show has featured your work on public opinion and U.S. foreign policy before, but you've got a Cato working paper out with your co-author, Eric Gopner, that presents your argument in updated form. In that paper, somewhere near the beginning, you quote uh, Walter Russell Mead, writing in the Wall Street Journal. He says, quote, there is no more important question in world politics than this. Will U.S. public opinion continue to support an active and strategically focused foreign policy? During the Cold War and, the, and for 25 years after, there was rarely any doubt. While Americans argued, sometimes bitterly, over the country's overseas priorities, there was a broad consensus in both parties that sustained engagement was necessary to protect U.S. interests, and that consensus is more fragile today. Is he right? Yes, he is absolutely right. Uh, I think there's no question that support for what has been the American foreign policy project for decades is more fragile than ever for all sorts of reasons, most of which are pretty familiar to Cato Power Problems listeners. Uh, you know, the two decades of endless war on terror going nowhere, maybe except in circles, um, and, you know, uh, sustained disillusionment in in the office of the presidency, you know, kind of e even the presidents who aren't Donald Trump aren't exactly uh, forthcoming, transparent, or even particularly honest about what's going on overseas. The Americans have a lot of reasons to question what, you know, the United States has been doing abroad. But the reason that we try to sort of investigate in this working paper uh, and you know the project I've kind of been working on for many years now is is this sort of deeper, more gradual, more fundamental, potentially more ground shaking questioning, and and that's the driven by the fact that younger Americans have very different views about the world and how to behave in it than older Americans do, and they in particular seem to sort of be at odds with what the United States has been up to for the last twenty plus years. Some of the polling that, for example, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs has done suggests a different interpretation, at least to some people. So what about the claim that Americans are actually increasingly supportive of active U.S. engagement in world affairs, as the Chicago Council puts it? What's missing from those interpretations? Yeah, I, I think, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of hand-wringing, uh, as, as the beginning of our paper notes. Um, around when Trump was elected in 2016, 
because Trump's election seemed to put a point on the rumblings that the polls had been showing sort of in the few years prior to that. In 2012, 13, 14, you were starting to see really sagging support for global engagement of various kinds. Uh, and, 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 and most people sort of, well, one possible thought at the time was, well, people are getting a little bit war weary, but people were starting to make the case that maybe it's something more than that. And Donald Trump's election all of a sudden sort of shouted, wait, it's not just war weariness. This guy is saying all the opposite stuff of everything. All political elites on both sides of the aisle typically say, how can you be getting away with this and winning? Uh, maybe something is really desperately wrong. But in the years that Trump was in office, you saw this weird boomerang effect. All sorts of things that were going down were going up and things that were going up went down. And so there's been some uptick in the polling for global engagement. And I think almost all of that is driven was driven by knee-jerk opposition to Donald Trump. And if he said stay out, a whole bunch of people said, Oh, stay in must you know, go in must be the right answer. And if he said, you know, stay here, leave there was the right answer, and so on. So we saw in the last couple of years sort of record support for free trade. And I'd love to believe that that was real, but I don't think it was. It was simply that Trump said trade is bad. And a whole bunch of people said, you know what? If he says it's bad, it must be good. And I think all those things in the next couple of years are going to re-level. And so, you know, things are always happening. You, you never go to a complete sort of equilibrium, if you will. There, it's always changing. Uh, but my guess is that you know, if we have four somewhat more normal years under Biden, uh, you'll see some of that knee-jerk support and opposition, you know, fall back to previous previous levels. I mean, it makes sense to me. I've talked with you you before about the distinction when you're looking at polling uh, of long-term trends compared with you know the annual uh, uh, picture of things. But anyways, your basic case, you zero in on young people, and you say that. The context in which they formed their views of U.S. foreign policy was very different than their parents' generation and their parents' parents' generation. And these views are likely to be sticky as time goes on, you argue, despite a tendency for people to gradually develop a kind of more internationalist inclination as they age. So talk about the importance of political socialization on why young people's views in this respect are likely, likely to be sticky over time. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's familiar with the old saying, you can't teach a old dog new tricks. And um, I, I actually, I, I didn't come to this insight sort of quickly. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not originally a student of political socialization or anything like that. But, but many years ago now, I when when teaching my undergraduate courses on American security policy, I would. I would ask my students as kind of a warm-up thing to introduce themselves, tell me their favorite movie. And then I'd always ask them, what, what's the first international sort of memory that you have? And at a certain point, some number of years ago, the, f the first memory most of my students would report was 9-11 as the first thing they could sort of remember about the rest of the world. And and you know, a couple of years in a row, this started like it was almost consensus. Like he'd blotted out the earliest memories, <laughs> you know, whatever else there were. And I said, "Man, that's got to mean something. That's got to be backing up on this generation. They must maybe they're freaking out about terrorism or something like that." And so, you know, digging in, um, I was trying to figure out, you know, what did they think about the rest of the world? I was shocked to find out that completely 
the opposite of what I expected. Instead of being more worried about terrorism, as I, I sort of expected from the 9-11 generation, the millennials, um, instead, they were less concerned about terrorism. And in fact, about pretty much every other threat uh, around the world than older Americans. And so the, the immediate question is, why the heck could that be? And I think the most obvious answer, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but I think the, the right answer is that uh, millennials are the first generation of Americans who came of age, you know, became sort of young adults and could think about the world in a semi-critical fashion. The first generation to grow up after the Cold War. And so they did not come into a world where there were sort of two incredibly and well-armed nuclear superpowers with uh, ideological, you know, hatred for each other, uh, staring each other down and making people worried that the world could end at any minute, uh, where the stakes were continually super high and people were worried and anxious about this for decades. Um, instead, they came into a world where, you know, the United States was number one with a bullet and had no competitors on the horizon and, you know, essentially fat, rich, and happy. And and then the, the other sort of issue is that um, they also, we, you know, we can talk about the other things that were true about when they grew up that were different from before. You know, the rest of the world is a lot closer to them, um, you know, with globalization, but also the internet. They they grew up in a world where, you know, China and Russia and, you know, South Korea, Japan are, are not really that far away. They're, you know, a, a a chat box away instead of something you might have seen in an encyclopedia or a history book, you know, if you were my age or someone older. Uh, and so I think they're just less scared of the world. They're less, it's less foreign to them in a sense. Um, and, um, you know, in addition, the millennials are also the most diverse generation of Americans. Their parents are much more likely to have been born somewhere else than is true for older Americans. And so for all these sorts of reasons, I think millennials and and now Gen Z are much less worried about the rest of the world than older Americans. And one of the big results is that they they tend to prefer cooperative engagement at a high rate while rejecting at a much higher rate military uh, engagement with the rest of the world. Just to emphasize that point a little bit, this might bring us on a tangent, but you say the nation's preoccupation with international threats has risen significantly since the 40s. Now, the 40s in particular are a weird starting point for that comparison, because at least as I think of it, we were facing uh, much more significant challenges than the one we face now. Is there anything other than generational differences and uh, socialization going on here? Does it have anything to do with elite signaling on these things? Uh, how, could, how could we be so wrong about the uh, threat uh, aspects out there? I think the other thing that is kind of a curious and I'm not the only person to make the argument about sort of increased threat perception risings over the Cold War I, that that argument itself is not original to me in any way um, a lot of people have noted that in a in a really counterintuitive sense as America has gotten richer and safer we've gotten more neurotically concerned about every little nick and and scratch and so we're more worried about healthcare now, despite the fact that people live longer and healthier than they ever did before. We're, you know, and and you can look at all sorts of domains, and and people aren't necessarily rational about their perceptions of dangers and, and threats. And so, you know, what we did for the paper is just try to kind of come up with a simple metric to kind of assess how that might have changed over the decades, because it's kind of hard to, you know, measure public neurosis or whatever. So we just measured how much sort of 
fear-related language we found in the news. And it was curious to me that, you know, despite the fact that we're in the middle of a world war, there was less fear-related language in U.S. papers during the 40s than there is today. And I think that the only obvious conclusion to me is it doesn't really reflect objective circumstances so much as the state of the nation's sort of psychology. And and that is partly related to reality, but partly not. So, you know, other things could be going on. Yes. I mean, you know, could could, uh, you know, do Americans' foreign policy attitudes reflect elite cues? hundred percent. But but at the same time, it, it's also still true that whatever set of elite cues uh, DC is beaming out today, the different generations are responding to them differently. And so, you know, you can explain ups and downs generically with elite cues or with Trump leaving and going and so on, but that doesn't explain why millennials are different from Gen X and Gen X is different from the boomers and the boomers are different from the silent generation and so on. And so to explain differences between generations, you really kind of need something that is specific to uh, a time argument. And the other argument that sometimes people make or, or would occur to people is that, well, you know, you don't really know much when you're young and when you're older, you'll know better and you'll think like me. And, um, you know, that there are some things in the world for which that is kind of true, um, but people often overmake that case. Uh, people imagine a lot more change in people's basic attitudes about the world than actually occurs. I mean, people don't go from liberal to conservative over their lifetime. Uh, they don't tend to, you know, go from not free trade to free trade over time. That that those are patterns that just I don't see anywhere. Um, and I and I certainly don't think you know the use of military force is one of those for example where people just sort of over time become more militaristic uh, i don't think that's true um and instead when we look at the data my you know co-author eric Gopner and i we we see a lot of consistency um uh, in terms of these generational gaps they they're not they're not narrowing as millennials get older and older the millennials are not getting closer to the boomers overall across most of these domains and i don't expect that um Gen Z and the millennials will ever look like their elders. I just, you know, I think, I think socialization is a very powerful force. And when you think, when, you know, when, when, when your worldview is kind of shaped, um, it's hard, it's hard to change. It's just a very sticky thing about you, you know, so your sense of right and wrong, your sense of who you are, you know, what an America is, what is it for? Is it a good place or a bad place? And, you know, that's one of the things that really triggers older audiences when, <laughs> when you haul out the, the polling that shows that younger Americans, like millennials, like just barely a half of millennials will agree that America is the greatest country on earth. Because they're like, well, you know, there's a lot of great countries. I don't know. We're not better. And that just sends older Americans into a complete tizzy. Um, but, you know, and that's not something that's going to change, right? I mean, this you look at an 80-year-old person and, and you don't question why they think America is the greatest place on earth. I mean, when they were kids, it was. It was, you know, fifty uh, percent of the global GDP just beat Japan and Germany, and you know, you know, standing on top of the world. And of course, you're the greatest country on earth. Everyone begging Americans for help. Um, but if you grew up after the year two thousand, right, and all you've seen of the government is endless, pointless war, a lot of shenanigans, Trump, uh, all this stuff. I mean, is that doubt ever going to leave the younger generation? You know, even if things go better, I, I can't see it. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned how 9-11 was a, a major um, event in forming millennials' opinions of the world and so on. 
But as you mentioned here, it's also true that what came after 9-11 also shaped their views. I wanna quote again from your piece. You argue that younger Americans are less supportive of international engagements than older Americans, in large part because they are less confident in the nation's ability to conduct successful foreign policy and less certain of the utility of military force. And that's one of the most encouraging sentences I've read in a very long time. <laughs> um, and it makes sense, certainly, uh, that, um, you know, uh, the, the display that we saw of government ineptitude on a number of issues in the post 9-11 era would, um, would, would deliver that message to, to millennials. But you also say that patriotism and nationalism have declined over time. And I'm suddenly feeling I'm receiving too much good news to uh, feel like a normal day. So what, what are we actually referring to with those terms? What's the evidence of their decline? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, again, that's, you know, polling data that comes from the usual suspects. And, um, you know, when, for me, the, the, the patriotism, nationalism stuff is uh, responses to questions like, you know, is America the greatest country on earth? And there's another one that says, do you think there's something special about the United States that makes it the greatest, or are other countries special too? And millennials and Gen Zers are just much more likely to put America in the rest with the rest of the pack. And, and to me, that's a very big signal as to whether if you're exceptional, it justifies all sorts of basically bad behavior, right? Because you're exceptional, the rules don't really apply to you. And I know you've complained about this sort of the exceptionalism, you know, mythos, it, it justifies all manner of wrongdoings um, because, you know, hey, that's, we, we're the, we're the, we're the exception. So, but, uh, so, I, you know, that, that kind of language is, is a big one. And I think the other piece of it is in the fact that, you know, younger Americans are so much less militaristic than older Americans that it, it becomes hard to see where you would get um, anywhere near as potent a marriage of, of sort of that sense of exceptionalism and the willingness to go beat people up, right? I mean, those are the two things that you need if you're going to keep on with the, you know, 70 plus whatever years of history of American foreign policy of going out and, you know, bending the rules so you can beat up the bad guys uh, willy-nilly. You, you have to believe both that the United States is exceptional and that military force is a good idea. And, and younger Americans are just, are not really buying either of those things. Um, and, you know, it, I, I can't quote all the different poll questions that are alike those things, but you know they're also much more likely young Americans to see China as a a partner rather than a rival. Uh, all, all sorts of questions like that, and you know once you see this pattern, um, you know my conclusion is that you know younger Americans. It's not that they don't like America; they love America. Um, you know, but they they don't think that the nature of our country is somehow a justification for doing things, you know, that are not good for other people, shall we say. I want to ask a, about polling in general um, and how, how you kind of see it. How can we be sure about how respondents understand the questions asked? You know, the popular baseline question of, do you think it will be best for the United States um, if we take an active part in world affairs or if we stay out of world affairs? And they have choices like stay out or be active. And do we have much insight into how they're interpreting these terms? And uh, does it get a little murkier when you get into specifics instead of broad terms like that? 
Yeah. I, you know, it's unfortunate that the Chicago Council, just to take that example, um, and frankly, at this point, Gallup and Pew also have long-running questions that are not much better, but they're super broad and pretty much pointless in terms of analytical leverage, right? The Pew question is is more like, you know, should should we take an active part or should we mind our own business internationally? Or, or you know, it's like, what the hell would that even mean? Mind your own business? We can't. How can you mind your own? Like, what is it? But I mean, you get kind of what they mean, maybe. But like, and what turns out now, the Chicago Council, to their credit, for a number of years now, has asked a follow up, open ended question to say to people who say stay out or be active, like, what do you mean? And and it, what it turns out is that there's usually something specific. Not. It's not necessarily so much a general attitude, the answer to that question, as there's usually when people say stay out, it's usually because they don't like something specific. And so, you know, most of the time over the last 20 years, that's been some kind of military action uh, and or a general sense that, um, you know, foreign affairs has become too expensive, right? For some reason, um, not entirely wrong, but, um, you know. So it's it's not usually a good measure of sort of an underlying understanding of how the United States should operate in the world. I mean, I think, you know, anyone that you had a four minute conversation with would understand the United States has to be active in global affairs. The question isn't be active or stay out. It's what the hell's the point and how should we get there? And, you know, the other questions that Chicago Council asks are much better at uh, digging through those questions. And I think, you know, you can build uh, a pretty good profile of of people using the other questions to elicit their uh, more specific feelings about the use of force in particular, the use of cooperative tools, and then their support for free trade, which I think are the sort of the three dimensions that matter most when we think about global engagement. And so it's really more questions about those specific things that you should that you should be looking at to understand over time how people are, um, you know, how interested and, and willing people are to engage the rest of the world and how. This case of yours is so important in part because we seem to be kind of witnessing it in real time in our politics. Um, so with Trump, you know, the Republican Party has become more amenable to criticizing certain aspects of U.S. activism abroad. And there was certainly evidence during the Democratic uh, presidential campaign um, with slogans like ending endless wars that there's also a cohort like that on the Democratic side. It's not that far into the Biden administration, but I mean, how do you see things? Are, are things being pushed in the direction that you uh, kind of lay out is, is uh, popular among young people here or, or is it slow going? I think it's a little slow going, um, although there are some positive signs from this standpoint. Now, it's ironic. And, you know, one of the things I, I did uh, during the, you know, the Democratic uh, nomination process was to try to assess all the Democratic candidates on these questions. And and <laughs> unfortunately, Biden was the most traditional internationalist of all of the candidates by a good bit. And so, you know, the expectation, it, assuming that foreign policy was going to move in a direction that Biden himself was choosing, is that it would kind of go back to the Obama, Bush, Clinton kind of era where, um, you know, we double down on all the same alliances and talk tougher about the Russias and the Chinas and, you know, intervene liberally all over the place. Um, now, 
I think the progressives during the the uh, you know election season made enough of a case that there was enough of a an electorate uh, had a big enough wish for ending the endless wars that that was a pretty safe thing to do, you know, especially because I don't think even Biden at this point can really look or point at anything in Afghanistan, for example, worth worth sticking around for. I mean, I you know, there's I just saw you know Hillary Clinton complaining, oh Afghanistan's going to be a mess. I'm like, oh yeah, whatever. I mean. Yeah, go back and look at all the hand wringing before we left Vietnam. Does anyone wish we had stayed? I don't think so. So let's just go and be done with it. So I think Biden's kind of lucking out in the sense that that he's he's getting to kind of truncate some of the trickier bits of the internationalist uh, strategy. Um, but I would say, I, you know, I don't know what your take is here, but he seems to be so busy, and you know, maybe you have to give him credit for being. Um, disciplined that he's not trying to take on too much at once. And foreign policy is nowhere near the top of his agenda right now. He's got COVID, COVID, COVID infrastructure or whatever the hell you want to call that bill. (laughs) So, you know, foreign policy, he's not, he's not trying. And so I think, you know, the interesting thing there is that, you know, most people don't care much on a daily basis about foreign policy. And so he's, he's benefiting from the fact that people will be patient before he does anything particular. So I think he has a leash there, at least seems to me right now. Right. But to bring it back to this generational way of seeing this, I think what you have is foreign policy elites and the establishment folks that kind of currently um, have sway over U.S. policy and the elected officials, by and large, they're old and they don't necessarily share the attitudes or possibly even understand them as serious uh, of younger Americans. And so that kind of makes me curious about how we expect things to change. There's going to be a lag probably in policy implementation versus public opinion. But um, it also strikes me that there has to be some kind of battle. There, we have to kind of really weigh uh, the, the options here and have a serious debate in order for this stuff to be flushed out. Because I can also see a situation in which elected officials and the establishment in foreign policy continue to try to sweep away these signals from the public that we should dramatically change our grand strategy for really the first time since the, since the Second World War to something more prudent and restrained. And so it's going to keep going until there's some kind of ugliness, I, I worry. But how do you think this will end up changing? So I, you know, I have a couple different minds on this, and I don't know if I had a crystal ball, I'd probably quit my job and just start playing the stocks. But, um, but I think you know, unfortunately, I think that there the action bias among public officials is so strong that, and the self selection process, of course, into the DC uh, blob is so strong that even the millennial and soon to be Gen Z staffers at various places in DC are all the most activist folks you can find for their generation. So I I don't think they represent their generation particularly well in terms of, right? I mean, the way elites tend not to, I mean, if you look at the uh, liberals in Congress and the conservatives in Congress, they are far more liberal and far more conservative than Republicans and Democrats in the rest of the country. And the same is true on foreign policy. Elites don't have anything like a Joe American foreign policy set of attitudes, period. There's books written on that. And so there's going to continue, I think, to be a rift until until the you know a possible time in the 
another couple of decades when when the electorate has maybe changed so much that there's just it just becomes hard to get elected saying things like let's go play whack-a-mole now that could happen but what i think is more likely to happen is that our our policy toward china is going to drive the conversation and unfortunately it's going to drive it in what i think is probably the wrong direction of increased global engagement of the wrong kind shall we say because i think unfortunately biden because he is sort of the old traditional you know there's no uh, danger too small to form an alliance around um and china unfortunately is a real challenge you know i don't say a, a, you know a competitor i you know call them an adversary but you know they're not our arch enemy um but we're looking like we're trying to turn them into one and as we do that i think the, the what's going to happen is once again like during the cold war you're going to have a bipartisan set of of cues telling people to be worried about china and and when dc is in lockstep on stuff most people don't escape and and they're going to just adopt the, those sets of views eventually and so i think the sad thing is that if DC poses uh, various, um, you know, trade wars or uh, building up, you know, selling weapons to the Philippines or, you know, whatever it might be uh, as self-defense against a rising and aggressive China, it's going to be hard for people to not support that. Even if it, you know, really isn't a very good idea, it's going to be hard for people to see alternatives. And so I, I unfortunately think that's probably more likely. And so, yeah, that would be a tragedy to me because you, you'd be telling me that, that the the most sort of restrained generation of Americans ever is going to basically you know get dashed up against the beach wall of of China and lost because you know we just had too big a fish to fry to take advantage of it. Do you think that the rivalry with China could be so prominent and so kind of uh, unique in terms of what we face in foreign policy that maybe millennials could? change their tune a bit, uh, you know, maybe less involved here, less involved there, but we really do need to f uh, face China. You know, I, again, I think, I, I think that your average young American could be persuaded or encouraged to adopt all sorts of different strategic views vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, and I think, it, you know, it would be easiest to convince them of a not very hostile, right? Some a, a more cooperative uh, framing with China would would in fact be easier to sell because I think that's the one that most young Americans would like to hear. But you know, again, absent a debate, they're not going to have much choice than to choose from a hawkish or a just a little bit more hawkish platform. And so you know, it's just like listening to Democrats and Republicans debate during the Cold War. It was like hawk one or hawk one plus a little bit more. You know. It, it, we argued a lot about those small differences, but in the end, it was really just one one dude with two heads, you know. And I think that's what the the China stuff's going to end up looking like. I, I do think that that China could can ruin this. I mean, I, I, sadly, I think Biden's already benefiting. He, he you know notice that he didn't he he just kind of rolled with a lot of Trump's stuff that he had already put in place, and he's taken advantage of the fact that that message has been pre sold and and agreed upon. So it's easier than trying to convince people of something else. And I just, I don't see, again, even younger um, security folks, again, people who tend to gravitate towards that field tend to be sort of activists. They tend to come out of a more sort of global engagement, not afraid to use military force kind of a mold. 
And so, for example, in my students who I see come through um, in, in the security field, they're very worried about China. I mean, they're writing papers hand over fist about how terrifying China is and how the Belt and Road is a sign of the apocalypse and all this other stuff. And I think it's all, I mean, I don't know if it's too late to close the barn door, but it's well and truly open, I think, at this point. One of the things I worry about is that, as we were kind of saying before, these might reflect, these, these polls might reflect the views of younger Americans and wanting a more restrained foreign policy. On the other hand, like we also said, foreign policy is not a huge priority for most Americans. And I kind of worry about the fact that most of U.S. foreign policy seems to be under the radar. And once the intensity and visibility of the post 9-11 wars are concluded or kind of pass away into several uh, secret wars, essentially, that take place not in the theater like Afghanistan or, or Iraq, um, and it'll be less on the radar of Americans. And it won't be a question of, um, you know, we have this major disagreement with U.S. military activism. It'll be a question of, oh, we're militarily active. I didn't even know. Right. I mean, how many Americans could even remotely guess at how many attempts, attempted regime change operations the United States launched during the call? I mean, it, it, you know, you drop those numbers on people, they're like, we did what? How many? 70? What was that? What? Like, there's not, how many countries are there? Like, that's like a lot of them, man. Like, you know, no, Americans had no idea because we didn't talk about them. And, you know, frankly, the United States has been pretty good, um, you know, Obama and Bush. And, and, you know, Trump too, honestly, have all been very good at not talking very much about what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? not to mention Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, wherever, you know, Niger, Malawi. I mean, you know, we're not saying a boo about those things. And for a very good reason, they don't want the public to know because, you know, public opposition would tie their hands. And so I think that's always been the fighting stance of the U.S. security state has been secrecy and always will be. And I think you're right. I think without kind of an obvious entry point for debate and discussion, like a, a war that you can see, um, the likelihood is that younger Americans may not really have much um, kind of input, basically, on U.S. foreign policy. And that would be that would be truly a shame. It's been said often that uh, foreign policy is an elite sport. Right. So we have this dynamic where, on the one hand, you are seeing generational trends in foreign policy towards restraint, towards some kind of more prudent U.S. foreign policy, considers U.S. interests more narrowly, perhaps. And at the same time, there's a growing policy community uh, in D.C. that's um, pushing restraint and sort of establishing a debate that hadn't existed prior to uh, just a few years ago. There's, a, there's a, a more explicit elite debate on these grand strategy questions. Um, and so I bet if you talk to most of those restrainers, including you and me, we don't consider ourselves populists by any means. Um, and it's certainly true that I see a lot of polls that can be construed in a way that uh, you know doesn't agree with uh, a lot of the ideas of restraint, but that sort of puts an interesting onus on the restraint-oriented policy community here in D.C. to emphasize what U.S. foreign policy is doing, um, try to get it out to the public, because there it does resonate with a large number of Americans, and we do risk uh, becoming our own audience and being the only ones that know how 
uh, how activist U.S. foreign policy is. What do you think of this dynamic where we have this group of policy analysts in D.C. working towards this thing that probably the rest of the country doesn't know uh, sort of reflects and represents their views? Well, I think it, it is such an interesting process because w when you see w when when a politician is elected or when you see a, a person take a position at defense or state, it's it's the they are the end product of a lot of work by other people to try to convince them of how to see the world. You know, this is sort of like the old saw that, you know, the politicians' views of economics are the result of some, you know, dead economist that they read in college 30 years ago or something like that, right? And so I think of these things the same way. Number one, no policy analyst gets to choose when a person was born and what world they will become socialized into. Now, the restraint community is fortunate because right now we are seeing year after year of young Americans come who are susceptible to our messages because of their uh, when they grew up, their views, their political views in general, uh, and so on. So we have an opportunity, I think, right now, despite what's happening in D.C. It's almost that's almost like a red herring. Like what's happening in D.C. today hap is actually the result of what happened 30 years ago. We lost that battle because there weren't enough of us back then. And it was the Cold War. And no one wanted to hear a thing about that stuff back then. So fine, we lost. The D.C. is still full of a blob right now. But can we reduce or change the nature of that blob to a more restrainty blob in 30 years? Yes, I think we can. How do we do that? It's not so much about arguing with the parents, right? We have to do that in public to show the kids that what the words are, to show them the language, to give them their logic, and to show them that the fight is important. But the reason we're going to win in the long run, or how we will win, is only if we can convince enough of those younger people as they're coming through college, taking their first jobs, you know, becoming aware of these debates. That's when we need to catch them because you know you don't you don't teach a fifty year old person to have a favorite new beer. Right, you have to catch a young person to make them have a favorite new beer, and the same thing is true with politics. You you don't change a fifty year old's view of how to engage the world; you change a twenty year old's view. So that's where restraint community, I think, needs to focus is educating young people. And I think I think we're doing a reasonable job of that. It's hard; it's very big country, big world, but you know, I think we're doing what we can. And I think we have been the silver lining of the horrendous tragedy that the war on terror has been we can say that, is that it has been a real big teachable moment for 20 years of, you know, you can point to this and go, guys, this is not how you do it. And I don't, you know, it's funny because as, as hyperbolic as I worry about my students being about China, when we talk about Iraq or Afghanistan, there is a lot of agreement about how dumb those were. And let's not do that again. So, you know, I think those things are pushing in restraints favor, regardless of what happens with China. So, I, you know, hopefully, Hopefully that will be strong enough to mute whatever sort of you know hawkish remnants there are around China or you know whatever. Um, but it's it's um, it is a hard game to keep playing in DC because you're never on the winning team <laughs> the way things are set up today. Well, someday we'll we'll get some wins. I think that's a fine place to leave it. Trevor, thanks for coming back. John, great to talk to you as always. <laughs>